Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. I do genuinely think there is something special about having the boomers as your parents, because the boomers were fundamentally allergic to authority. And you can't be a parent and not exercise authority. Being allergic to authority makes you unsuited to the very fundamental tasks of raising children. So millennials are in a better position than anyone to diagnose what's wrong about the boomers. So poor Gen X, they get sidelined again. Hope you guys are having a good Thursday. We have an excellent episode for you all. We are speaking with Helen Andrews, senior editor at the American Conservative, about her new book, Boomers, the Men and Women Who Promised Freedom and Delivered Disaster. It is out this Tuesday, the 12th of January, but right now it's the perfect antidote to what I'm sure we are all feeling after the storming of the Capitol yesterday, a deep frustration with both our elders and the system that we all live under. So this is an excellent book. It's a great conversation. Helen is very interesting in that she, while being conservative, is tremendously fair to the figures she profiles. So she talks about Steve Jobs, Al Sharpton, Aaron Sorkin, but rather than just giving a cold take about how Al Sharpton is engaged in anti-Semitism, or Aaron Sorkin writes very liberal West Wing episodes, she thinks critically about these figures and uses them as a method for discussing the failures of their generation. I really love talking with Helen. She did a great job of explaining how we're all really just living in the boomers world, and especially amidst what is such a depressing and horrible time in our country in the midst of what happened yesterday. And I think that reflecting upon what the broader structural problems that brought us to where we are right now, which we try to do as much as we can on the show, is really the best way that we can add value to our lives. And I hope that you are all at home and safe with your loved ones right now. All that being said, please do us a favor and subscribe to therealignment.substack.com, which is our new newsletter. We have some amazing content there for you all. It's going to hit your inbox tomorrow. It's got transcripts. We get some very long listener feedback, including, and I just came up with this, but Marshall, I think in light of what has happened, we want to include some reading links and some articles and others that are helping us contextualize just how crazy things are in this country right now. So look up for that, therealignment.substack.com. I'll also include a couple of book links. I've been really thinking about history in our country today and, and different points where something like this could have happened and they didn't and where great men intervene. And we're going to have a link to our bookshop, bookshop.org. Of course, it's just an amazing website. It's where you can order a book that we recommend. The book comes from an independent bookstore, which desperately needs help in the middle of this crisis right now. And it helps the show. So please do us a favor, go to therealignment.substack.com. You can see our newsletter, get access to our bookshop, and you really help us out. And we've helpfully included links to both the Substack sign-up and the bookshop at the bottom in the show notes. So please be sure to check there. But on to my favorite part of the episode, which always happens to be on the nose with what is going on with the world 
Here's today's question from JT Concerned. A quick reminder, the way you get us to read your question on air or respond to a longer question on Substack is to send us an email at realignmentpod at gmail.com with a screenshot of a five-star review, or you can leave the question in a five-star written review. Today's question comes from Apple Podcasts. It is from JT Concerned. In the interview of Matt Stoller, there was much conversation around presidential power. My question is, why focus on presidential power? In a time of divided power, why not focus on congressional power and responsibility? So anyone who goes through our reviews will notice that this is an older question. It's from December 5th, last year. I waited on it because I didn't have a compelling answer, but at least right now in response to what happened on the Capitol yesterday, it's the perfect time for us to focus more on Congress. And the part that I'm most excited to focus on when we think about congressional power is the role that individual congressmen and women are going to be able to make after Trump leaves office. So much of what has gone on in the past four years, for good or for ill, has been focused around people saying, well, Trump's doing this, so I don't have a choice but to respond in X, Y, and Z ways. That excuse, especially after what happened yesterday, is completely gone. So something we're going to do more on the show, from my perspective, is focus more on these individuals, these senators, these representatives, and the choices they make in the face of these sort of forces. It's a very important question, JT, that you asked today, and I don't really feel like pulling any punches. Here's the truth. I'll tell a short story, if you'll all indulge me. There's an apocryphal tale where Thomas Jefferson, who was actually abroad in France while they were drafting the Constitution, came back to the United States, and he was sitting at a table with George Washington. And Thomas asked him, he said, why did you do this bicameral legislature? Why did you have a Senate? And apparently, they were drinking tea at the time. And Jefferson had poured some tea in his saucer. This is something that English people do in order to cool it down. And Washington, he looks at him in the eyes and he says, Thomas, why did you pour that tea into the saucer? And Thomas says, well, to cool it. And Washington says, just so. As in that the Senate was supposed to be the bulwark against majoritarian mob rule. And in many ways, that is probably what's going to happen when we're recording this podcast, the the Electoral College has not been officially certified. But there were enough people that played along that I'm genuinely disgusted at their abdication of responsibility from something that would not have passed muster even 10 years ago. And it just goes to show, again, what Marshall was talking about. Individual choices made by these individual senators shine a light on what they think is actually important and what is not, and why the character of the people that we do elect to office does in fact matter. It is not everything. Policy choices are there too. But I think that if there's one mistake maybe I've made in my public commentary, it's not emphasizing that character is just as important as policy when we find out in crises like this one. And just to build on that, a quote I've been throwing around a lot the past few weeks is the sentence in JFK's inaugural address in 1960, where he said, he who ride the back of the tiger ends up inside. There are too many politicians, especially on the right, who are consistently thinking that the best way to engage in the craziness of this country right now is to ride the back of the worst version of populism, the worst version of conspiracy theories, thinking that by doing this, they're going to get a leg up on 2024. Here's the truth, and everyone knows it. It's not going to work. The majority of the country doesn't support it. And frankly, those people who are the most there for stopping the steal and QAnon and everything odious are not going to vote for you in the first place. So don't play the game. And 
I just want to also give a shout out to a senator who has really impressed me, Senator Tom Cotton. He came on the show. We had him back in February. And what's difficult when you're thinking about senators and congressmen and everyone of that sort in D.C. is that there are so many narratives. There are narratives about this person is tough or this person is a leader. And at a certain point, when you hear something a lot of times, you are lithe to think that it's just not true. Well, Tom Cotton, Senator Cotton, obviously could have gone in on stopping the steal. He could have given a mealy mouth speech, but instead he just said no. He knew what he stood for. He stood up for what was obviously the truth and it's earned my tremendous respect. And I think it's very important that we all, as we think about these things, consider how leaders are responding to these situations. Yeah, very well said. As always, a special shout out to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring the work that we do here on the podcast. Wouldn't be possible without them. And enough of us talking. Let's get to this incredible episode. Helen Andrews, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you so much for having me. Good to see you, Helen. So Helen, you host a podcast, so you know that booking and scheduling is a weird mix of art and science. Obviously, we should have had this come out on the day of the book release, which for listeners is January 12th, if I'm correct. However, the universe has intervened, and as we speak, a cadre of boomers are storming the U.S. Capitol, so we could not have (laughs) taped this at a better time. So the first question is... Is the storming of the Capitol the culmination of boomerism? Yes, yes. Um, And that holds true whether or not the people actually storming the Capitol are all themselves boomers. Um, Because some of the people (laughs) that I've seen in the footage look a little bit young, but this is the problem with millennials. We are all still stuck reliving and replaying the same boomer film reel. We think that the height of politics yeah. was attained in 1968. And we, you know, we, when we were in college, we felt kind of cheated if we didn't have something to protest. So we came up with random issues if we didn't have one. Cause you really haven't even gone to university if you haven't chalked something offensive on the quad. And in the same way, are you really even a citizen of the US if you haven't, you know, rioted at one point or another? So yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're stuck I, in the sixties and it's the boomers fault. I, I, I love that we're talking to you on this date, Helen, and that this is the heuristic that we can, uh, we can bring to it. And I mean, on a broader level, is this why you wrote the book? Because you can see just how us, our society, our politics, everything is kind of ruled by a mindset and by an experience of a people who just seem to have such a monolith control over how we view the world, over how everything operates. Just talk to us about why you decided to write this even in the first place. Uh, yeah, I have to say the the resentment that uh, was the germ of this book was almost even more prosaic than, than what you described. It's that I was kind of angry that my parents' generation had it so much easier. You know, I thought to myself, gosh, it would have been great mm-hmm. to live at a time when you could graduate from college without a mountain of student debt because you could pay off a semester, you know, couple afternoons a week sweeping floors at the chemistry lab, you know, Uh, or when you could attain a middle-class standard of living in a one earner household, you know? And I saw other people around me who were having a really hard time just getting married, you know, coupling off just wasn't coming together for them. 
And I remember thinking, gosh, you know, that, that also seemed to be a whole lot easier back in the day. Um, but I didn't want to write a book just out of resentment. Um, so the mission that I set myself as I, as I uh, started writing it was to sort out what problems were the boomers' fault versus what were just, you know, perks where they happened to be alive at the right time. You know, um, the economy was really, mm. really booming after World War II. And that's, you know, that's not anybody's fault or anybody's credit. That's just the way the way the sine curve goes. So if they benefited from a really raring economy and we didn't, can I really hold that against them? So I wanted to sort out which things I could blame them for and which ones they were innocent of. Yeah, one of my favorite lines, yeah. because it provides the framework from the book, is this idea that few generations, if any other generations, have been gifted such a great hand and then taken such a hand and screwed it up. So let's engage with the framework. You hit on this a bit when you talked about the economy. What specifically was the hand that boomers were set? And I'll also add to this question, not to get too woke here, but when we talk about boomers, like who are they? Because obviously if you were a black dude in the South in 1945. You obviously weren't dealt a great hand. So how do we sort of rank and order the boomers when it comes to the Olympics of the framework we're doing here? Uh, well, I'll answer the last part first, uh, because that's kind of the critique of the book that I get most frequently, you know, which is sure, it was great to be alive in 1950 if you were a straight white male. Um, and I reject that mainly for two reasons. Uh, the first is that I just don't buy into the identity politics framework that says that somebody's most marginal characteristic is the most important thing about them. You know, you might have been a gay man in a Midwestern city in 1950, um, and you'd be frustrated that you couldn't really come out to anybody except your family and your close friends and your partner. But on the other hand, maybe that same person was also a member of the Episcopal Church, and he kind of enjoyed being a member of a church that you know, had a future, which the Episcopal Church today kind of really does not. Uh, and that's kind of thanks to the mm. boomers. Um, so, you know, each individual is complex and has different priorities. And it's not always uh, simple in an identity politics way. And the second reason is that even the issues themselves are never that simple. Um, and I think about this question mainly in terms of feminism and women, because that's the one that I know firsthand. You know, uh, women were a lot less liberated in many ways uh, in the period mm -hmm. that I'm painting as a golden age. So I've had to personally reckon with that. Um, but you know, it's an interesting anthropological fact that looking at different civilizations throughout history, there have been others that liberated women just as much as we do today, where women were held in the same esteem as men in public affairs, they were you know, allowed to hold jobs, uh, they were very equal in the senses that we think of as important today. But it's uh, the anthropological fact is that societies that make women equal in that way tend to also at the same time devalue the family. In other words, the more equal women are in terms of competing with men, the less your society cares about motherhood and you know children belonging to their parents they just kind of denigrate the family sparta is the classic example you know they had women warriors in sparta and mm -hmm. nobody gave a damn about whose kid anybody was because they didn't care about the family um and of course the obvious complication is that every woman or, or most women are also members of families so an individual woman might say well i'd be willing to sacrifice a little bit of you know the equality on this scale 
if I lived in a society that cared more about me as a mother or as a daughter. So it's, there are some people who think no woman can possibly have been truly happy before suffrage. But I just don't think that simplistic way is a good way to think about it. It's always more complicated. That was so, a really long answer. <laughs> no, no, it's but it's good. I mean, that's no, no, of, it's good. That's, that's what we're here for. So and I forgot to answer your question of who are the boomers, which yeah. is people born between 1945 and 1964. So thanks for actually you ordered it the exact way that I wanted you to have ordered it. So thank you. But before we get into the specifics moving forward with the boomers, can we just give a good portrait of the generations coming before, especially within the framework of the book that this is sort of based on, Eminent Victorians, which was the same profile style, but focused on the Victorian era um, British folks. Um, so could you firstly explain Eminent Victorians um, and then contextualize like the silent generation and the generations before the boomers, and then we'll be, take, we'll be taken to the present day at that point? Sure. Um, well, my book is modeled on, as you say, eminent Victorians, which was written by a guy named Lytton Strachey. And he was a bit of a bohemian. Uh, he was English and he was a member of the Bloomsbury group. So he hung out with Virginia Woolf uh, and all of those folks. And so naturally, mm -hmm. because he was so bohemian, uh, he hated stuffy Victorian values. You know, his father had been very conservative and he was very much rebelling against his own upbringing. Um, and this had been always kind of a minority view. Everybody in England kind of liked the Victorians and thought, you know, they're the people who made our country great and built the greatest empire the world has ever seen. So no, we're, we're pro-Victorian here in England. And then came World War I. Uh, and suddenly everybody said, that is just the worst trauma our country has ever endured. What went wrong? And Lytton Strachey was right there with his book saying it was the Victorian generation and all of their Victorian values that brought us to this crisis of World War I. And it became a publishing sensation. Uh, it really one of the first best sellers because that was a message everybody had an appetite to hear that the Victorians had screwed up. Um, and fingers crossed that people feel that way about the boomers today. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guarantee you everybody feels that way, Helen. Um, I'm, a, you know, I'm a lover of history. And so, I mean, what you're pointing to it's funny, I was joking with Marshall when we were talking about this. I was like, yeah. He was like, look, the Victorians were terrible. Like, like they had World War One and then the breakup, and then they led to World War II, literally, like some of the most tumultuous, most deaths. And I'm like, you know, but I look at the boomers today, and it's like, and I hate to say it, but I'm like, it's so terrible. Why are the boomers just as terrible as the Victorians, even though, look, we live in, you know, you know, t we, we live in tumultuous times, yes, but it's not World War One level death. We live in a pretty lethargic and pretty wealthy society, all things considered. Yes, there are many structural inequities and all that. Why are they comparable to the Victorians and what they have wrought upon us? Um, well, here, the answer is sort of one of those things that's so obvious, it's staring you in the face, it's almost hard to see. Uh, and it is because there are just so many of them, Right. Uh, from the moment the from the moment the boomers came of age, they were the biggest demographic, which meant that advertisers were chasing their dollars. You know, if you were trying to sell a product, you have always directed your sales pitch to the boomers because that's where the money was. Um, politicians have courted them since they were young because they were the biggest voting block. Um, 
You know, any, if you're an artist, if you're trying to appeal to the public in any way, you have wanted to direct your efforts to the boomers. So they kind of grew up with an only child syndrome, right? Where they were the prince of the house and everybody pampered them and spoiled them. And the result was a kind of understandable streak of narcissism, right? So if, if you wanted to boil down what's terrible about the boomers, it is that they're narcissists uh, and they're almost to a solipsistic extent, but you almost can't blame them because it's strictly a function of their numbers. You know, everybody's treated them like the king of the heap since they were born and, and that's why. When your biggest everything fundamentally is sort of about you is the point I'm taking from that. So yeah. earlier in the conversation, you were talking about the 1960s. A part that was funny during the book, because this is also in the category we don't always think about it this way, but you talk about the boomers take credit for civil rights ending the Vietnam were always sort of dynamics. But actually, if you actually think about it, it was probably a silent gener it was silent generation types. Um, the greatest World War II generation Tom Brokaw types who actually probably did those things. So what is going on in that narratives that the boomers are telling themselves? Is that just a result of the narcissism or within that framework, you yourself are at the center of that story? Uh, yeah, the boomers have really kind of adopted everything that was good about every preceding generation. Uh, you know, like they have this idea that Martin Luther King Jr. was a boomer, <laughs> which he absolutely was not. Um, and on the other hand, really uh, painting the past as darker than it was. Um, you know, so the, the boomers have this idea that, you know, they invented sex, right? Nobody ever had sex before the baby boomers came along. Uh, and they were really the most innovative, uh, progressive generation in history. Um, now, if you know anything about, you know, the roaring 20s, you know, that's not the case. Um, but it's an inability to give previous generations any credit for anything. Uh, because on the one hand, you don't believe anything good about them. And on the other hand, anything that is good about them, you take credit for. <laughs> a quick thing on that then. In fairness to boomers, because we are definitely insulting a small but no doubt loud percentage of the audience here. What yes, would we're you get a lot of emails about this one. So you, you gave the critique of the Victorian era, but in the U.S. specifically, what were legitimate gripes that that baby boomer post-1945 generation had with their parents and their elders? Um, the number one was the war. Uh, I mean, the, the anti-war movement had its problems, and I don't like Bill Ayers and Bernadette Dorn any more than any other conservative does, uh, but... <laughs> It's true that if you were in your 20s at the end of the 60s, a lot of your friends were getting sent off to die for a war that did not make any sense at all. Um, now, mm -hmm. if you look at the actual anti-war movement, um, Brian Burroughs' book, Days of Rage, is really, really good on this. Uh, he makes the point that the people who were the leaders of the anti-war movement were all radicals before the war escalated. The war was not their issue. They were, you know, uh, into black power, you know, um, they really believed in Black Panther type issues, or they were communists and they wanted a genuine revolution. And they used the war as a way of roping naive middle-class kids into their rebel movement that they genuinely thought was going to 
stage a revolution in the United States. So they kind of manipulated the issue of the war in a way that wasn't particularly honorable. Um, the Chicago Seven are a good example of this. Uh, but at the end of the day, I cannot defend the Vietnam War. Uh, the anti-war movement was correct on the merits. <laughs> You'll defend everything else, yes. just not the yes. Vietnam War. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the real thing that I want to make sure that we like we put forward is a framework. And this is actually another thing I really appreciated about the book is you selected like a few different characters. Tell us who those characters were, why you selected them. Like Steve jobs, right? One of the people that you point to is Steve jobs. And I'm like, Steve jobs, like this guy's like one of the richest people in the world. And like, you know, I mean, he created the iPhone and like, like he, he was an icon. I mean, what is it about him that exemplifies the problem with the boomers? Um, well, the first thing to say up front is that while this is kind of an anti-boomer book, that does not mean that I hate the people I profile. In fact, I didn't want to profile anybody that I felt contempt for, uh, who I thought, or who I thought was strictly a villain. They are all people <laughs> who have elements of greatness, but who ended up having sometimes an ironically negative or tragic effect on the world. Uh, and Steve Jobs is a great example of that. Um, I actually came into that chapter wanting to defend him against something that people always say about Steve Jobs that I thought was unfair and wrong. People always say that Steve Jobs' hippie persona was just an act, right? They say he was only pretending to be a groovy hippie who went on a pilgrimage to India and studied design at Reed and whose mm -hmm. idol was Bob Dylan. You know, at the end of the day, he was just a corporate shark and nothing more. Uh, I reject that. Uh, I think that the 60s and boomer values truly shaped how Steve Jobs ran his business. Uh, and the, the simple way to put that is that before Steve Jobs, uh, IBM was the definitive computer company. And the way IBM computers worked is that there would be one computer in your office and it would be supervised by specialized technicians. And you would go and you would ask them for permission to have time on the computer or for them to do a certain task for you. And they would consider your request and then you know maybe fulfill it in a week and a half. Um, Steve Jobs said, I reject that. One person, one computer, that's my mantra. I want it to be in everybody's lap and I want it to be simple enough to use that unlike an IBM computer, you don't need two weeks worth of training to figure it out. I want it mm -hmm. to be a bicycle for the mind, a tool of liberation. And you know what? He succeeded. Technology looks the way it does today. It's individualized because Steve Jobs' vision for technology prevailed. Uh, now, there have been some negative effects and some downsides. And I think in many ways, people are less free today because he prevailed on individualized computers, you know, putting a computer in everybody's pocket. But you have to give him credit, one, for having an idealistic vision, and two, for following through on it, because he absolutely did. I want to move forward, but I have to ask a follow-up to something you said. Who are the boomer villains? You said there were <laughs> villains that you had to ignore. Who were the, who were the villains? You know, uh, well, gosh, he's, he's somebody who also has elements of greatness, but somebody who I did not want to write about was Bill Clinton. Um, first of all, because I don't think there's mm -hmm. a lot more to say <laughs> about Bill Clinton that has not already been said, um, but also just because I, I, I don't feel the magnetism that he is said to possess. I just, I don't like him. I don't, I don't have that feeling that I have about mm. Steve Jobs that, you know, you had greatness, but it was ended, ended in tragedy. I don't see the irony. I just, 
find him repulsive. You know, well, here's what's interesting about here's what's interesting about Bill Clinton and Sagar. You know Clinton too, not no personally, audience listeners. Mm-hmm. We're okay here, but I mean on the level of like Bill Clinton. What's interesting about his story is, you know, the David Moranis book, first in his class, the best, the brightest, the smartest, and then he's just a total letdown. He's the charismatic speaker who never gave a good speech. That doesn't interest you? Well, you know what? I actually did get a chance to say what I wanted to say about the the interesting qualities of the Clinton White House in the chapter on Aaron Sorkin, Um, because that was kind of- I was just about to go there. Oh, yeah, Yeah. because I I don't know if people know this, but it's obvious if you know anything about the 90s or about the West Wing that a lot of West Wing plot lines were ripped from the headlines, right? Like there were Clinton White House alumni consulting on the show, and they basically just fed Aaron Sorkin all of their best anecdotes. Um, So literally at least half of the plot lines in West Wing are straight Clinton things that actually happened. And... uh, Obviously, that's a case where Aaron Sorkin made a more idealized vision of the Clinton White House than the one that actually existed. Um, so, yeah, I can see that there there was some nobility there, but all of that nobility was kind of extracted and purified by Aaron Sorkin uh, in the West Wing. And that's what I preferred to talk about. So when we're thinking about Aaron Sorkin, let's just make this as millennial a conversation as possible. And what do you think of the West Wing as a show? Especially the first three seasons, which are Aaron Sorkin seasons, we're not going to speak of the four, five, six, sevens. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? I, I, secret confession, I love Aaron Sorkin. I have seen everything he's ever written, and I love all of it. Um, but I just offer you a quick, Helen, I want to actually offer you a quick compliment um, on this. Speaking of that, because when you're reading the book, there's the there's the version of this book that you could have written in terms of the predictable conservative take. So the predictable conservative take would have been West Wing is terrible and libs are libs and it's really bad. Also, we'll talk about it, but your Al Sharpton chapter was incredibly charitable in a very fair way. Um, it's not really focused on the very obvious, like AKA he engaged in anti-Semitism. Like that's true. We all know that we've all read our and our copies from 2008. So that's not much of a thing for debate. So I just want to if you're li- when you're listening to this, just really consider this is it's fair, and that's what makes it really meaningful on my part. I, I, that means a lot to me. And actually, when I was first writing the manuscript, that's feedback that I got from early readers, um, and it was the it's the response that means the most to me because it was important to me to be scrupulously fair, um, especially to Aaron Sorkin, who I want to reiterate I love. <laughs> Um, Yeah, the Aaron Sorkin chapter is actually not so much a defense of the West Wing. It's more a defense of the rest of the Aaron Sorkin canon. Uh, Because I lived through that, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember people saying that Studio 60 was a terrible TV show. Can you tell people what that was? People don't know Studio 60. One season... Suppressed, yeah, it, it, it got suppressed. You, know, you made that sound like a conspiracy. <laughs> well, no, it's he, Aaron Sorkin definitely doesn't want to talk about it because it was a huge flop. And I mean, Aaron Sorkin was the right. hottest screenwriter in Hollywood. He had they wrote him a blank check to do whatever show he wanted. He was had total control, and he decided he wanted to do a behind the scenes comedy drama about a show like Saturday Night Live weekend sketch comedy and it would be all about the actors and the lead writer and the producer a behind the scenes comedy about snl and 
the critique that he always got that annoyed the heck out of me was people saying he's writing West Wing monologues for people who work at SNL. Late night comedy just isn't that important, man. You're, you're sounding so pompous. <laughs> and the tragedy there <laughs> is that Aaron Sorkin genuinely believes that the decisions made by Hollywood executives mean more to more people than the decisions made by the people who work at the White House. And you know what? I think that's absolutely true, right? Like entertainment just looms a lot larger in the mental headspace of your average American than, you know, whatever news story is coming up on CNN. They just know more about it. It's more important to them. So, you know, and it's extra ironic in a final sense because Aaron Sorkin himself does not care that much about politics. And that always kind of annoyed him when the West Wing became this liberal cause celeb and everybody was saying that he was some political guru. He's like, I just write nice dialogue. You know, I'm not an ideologue. I don't know that much about politics or care that much about politics. I just like the sound of smart people talking to each other. So don't make me some political guru. I don't know. So yeah, he finally got to make a show about something he's truly passionate about, which is television. And everybody told him to shut up because he was sounding pompous. That's, that's the tragedy that most attracted me uh to the Aaron story do you have a defense of the newsroom that is the that is you do okay that's what we're all waiting for um i actually love the newsroom by the way yeah (laughs) see thank you um no it's a it's a guilty pleasure um and it's again uh aaron sorkin wanted to make a show about tv but I guess some executives told him he had to throw some politics in there and he kind of agreed and said, okay, fine, I will. Um, when even today, politics is not what gets Sorkin's blood moving. Um, so yeah, The Newsroom was a show with a lot of really sparkling dialogue, a lot of really good cast. Alison Pill was just a knockout in that show. She was really good in kind of an old timey screwball comedy sense. But the presence of politics just ended up grating and the reason is that that's not what Sorkin cares most deeply about. Helen, I, I guess this is one thing I, I was occurring to me as you were talking, which is that the power of Sorkin's dialogue and really of just like what he was so good at. And this again kind of goes again to that heuristic that he and boomers kind of rule both, uh, really all of us, is that as a child growing up watching The West Wing and then now working in D.C., I'm sure we all have the same phenomenon, is that people, it, it, it infected the way that we all think about lofty rhetoric, about what rhetoric is, about how politics should work. And even today, you know, as much as I make fun and I dunk on these people, I can't help but, you know, still operate within that framework. Talk to us about how that victory has had an impact on our politics right now. Oh, man, uh, you don't even know the half of it. I am exactly the right age to have come up with the generation of people who went into politics because they watched the West Wing. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, gosh, being in the Yale Political Union, it was just omnipresent. Everything was (laughs) West Wing references, wall to wall. And it still is today. You know, you're absolutely right. Uh, Armando Iannucci has a funny anecdote. When he was doing research for the show Veep, uh, he was shown around the White House. And the people who were showing him around were saying, oh, that's the desk where Donna would sit and that's where Josh would be. Uh, And he kind of wanted to say timeout. Those are fake people. You are real people (laughs) who have those actual jobs. Would it not be more accurate to say that that is where you sit? 
Um, but no, it's really how they think about their jobs. And the downside of that is one, that it breeds a certain arrogance, right? Because the Sorkin characters are glamorous and omnicompetent. And I'm not sure I want my White House staffers and politicians to be thinking of themselves as glamorous and omnicompetent. Uh, I think that leads them down a bad road. But also, I mentioned earlier that a lot of West Wing storylines were ripped from the headlines. The difference is that Sorkin always gives his storylines a happy ending. You know, there was a contested election in Haiti uh, and they tried to unseat the Democratic winner, but we went in and reinstated him. And then everything was happy ever after uh, when uh, the election of, of Aristide was, was very much not that way. Um, or, you know, intervention in a Rwanda-like country. All of these storylines that made their way to the West Wing ended up with happy endings and there were no complications and no moral ambiguities. And I also don't want the people in the White House thinking that way either. Uh, I think if you think of your job in terms of the West Wing, even apart from the lameness of being one of the most powerful people in the world and thinking of your life in terms of a TV show, um, <laughs> this particular TV show leads to some, some very bad habits of thought for powerful people. Could you talk about the left-right split there? Mm -hmm. So we all have an image of Obama era, now at Pod Save America type people in 2013 as we're discussing this. But when you encounter the conservatives at the Yale Political Union or conservatives in D.C., New York, whatever, is there a cultural product that's influencing the way that they LARP or engage with the world to the same degree? No, it's still the West Wing. It's they, they, they're all Ainsley Hayes is what they say. Every, every female Republican in DC has had people say, have you, do you know Ainsley Hayes? Um, and, and actually that's, uh, while, while I'm making a defense of Aaron Sorkin, one of the other things that I'd like to defend him on is being fair to conservatives. Uh, I think that all of his conservative mm -hmm. characters are ultimately failures. Uh, like he, d he does not do it well, but he is trying to do conservatives uh, fairly. And to understand that, you have to know how Aaron Sorkin first became famous. Uh, he broke out as a young playwright with A Few Good Men. You know, Jack Nicholson on the stand, you can't handle the truth, A Few Good Men. Yes. Um, don't erase Tom Cruise. It's very important here, too. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Was he even in that movie? I was focusing on Nicholson and Demi Moore. Yeah. <laughs> Pollock was great, Kevin Pollock. That's a really good cast in that movie. Um, yeah. But... Uh, when he wrote that, he had a lot of people coming up to him saying, oh man, so where did you serve? You know, like what's your military experience? And of course, Aaron Sorkin himself never served a day in uniform. He has no military experience, but he really captured mm -hmm. something about the conservative ethos of fealty to the Marine Corps and patriotism that just, it, it rang true to a lot of people. And so, that was beautiful and a testament to his talent, but it also kind of gave Aaron Sorkin the idea that he was going to be like the red state whisperer, you know, who could understand conservatives and capture their voices and explain them to the left. And that's why he keeps trying to write conservative characters. Um, and it just never quite comes off. It's very frustrating. Uh, but I, I, gosh, give him credit for trying. Not everybody in Hollywood would. I actually thought that was one of the most charitable sections. You're like, look, at least, you know, the characters he writes are honorable. And they were like, they, he tries to project something. And look, I could talk West Wing, Aaron Sorkin and all that all day. <laughs> I also can confess, uh, I was one of those people when I first got to go to the press secretary's office, I was like, this is CJ's office. And with the turkeys and all that, I, I know it's cringe and it's embarrassing, but... 
That's how it is, and I got to admit it. Let's also talk about Al Sharpton, um, because I thought this was a really interesting section of the book. And I want you to just lay out, you know, what it is about Sharpton and like his career and, and, and uh, you know, experiences through our age to kind of tell us the story of the boomers today. Well, gosh, to start off with something good about Al Sharpton, because uh, as, you, as you said, Marshall, you know, we, hopefully, hopefully we all know the bad things about him and the dabbling in anti-Semitism and getting murderers off. Uh, yeah, all, all of that is true. Mm -hmm. But something good you can say about him is that he has a genuine democratic following, right? Like there, when, when he talks- Small D. Real yeah, exactly. Uh, when he talks, people yes. listen. Um, you know, when he needs people to come out to his rally, people will show up, um, which is not true of a lot of Black Lives Matter type activists today. Uh, kind of the glaring two data points you all, that are kind of all you have to look at. I know where one, you're going. I'm smiling. I love I love this example. It's amazing. Yeah, exactly. No, you know, when Al Sharpton ran for mayor of New York City, he came in second for the Democratic nomination um, mm -hmm. to run against Rudy Giuliani. He almost made it. And his percentage of the vote was higher than the black population of New York at the time. So it was not just black people writing, voting for Al Sharpton. He had a following. He got people to vote for him. Compare that to good old DeRay McKesson, the guy with the blue puffy vest uh, who came out of the Ferguson mm -hmm. protest in Black Lives Matter. He made a try of running for mayor of Baltimore because, you know, why not? Uh, and ended up getting 3% of the vote. Something like 3,000 people voted for him. Maybe not even. Um, so, you know, whatever you want to say about Al Sharpton, he has a genuine democratic following. Um, but I, I, he has not, not always used that <laughs> in, in the best in sense, a befitting way. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. The, the question that comes to mind, especially given the dichotomy you set up is what differentiates a black leader like Al Sharpton boomer from the alpha millennial black activist type like DeRay McKesson. Like it's, there, there are many, like we, when I was on firing line, he came on the set and he wore the jacket and the way that, and to be entirely honest, the way that white upper middle-class liberals respond to the jacket is just the most, they're like, it's so edgy, but it's safe. Whoa. And then we were doing research for the show and he went to a vanity fair party and he was still wearing the jacket over his tuxedo. They're like, oh my gosh, he still did it. It's remarkable. <laughs> it's, it's, it's brilliant. Like that's the point about, so. But, How so, many of those vests does he have? Does he just have beat a down, it's beat, it's, them? It's beat, it's the vest is beat down, which adds to the effect. It's brilliant. It's not new. It's worn down. I, like, I don't know. I'm not going to comment. Maybe it doesn't smell. Maybe it does, but it looks like it's beat down. It's remarkable. But, but can you talk about the two generations and what drove that process. What I'll just say is my thesis, this isn't mine. It's a friend of ours who you definitely know is it's all college campuses, especially the type of black leader who does very well in the, let's just say like, actually I'll, I'll just say the example we gave. This person went to a Northeastern liberal arts college, very small, very elite, very white. And he was like, I'm, when I saw DeRay for the first time, I was like, this is the type of person who gets selected to be the tour guide at this school because the families come in and they're like, well, this doesn't seem diverse. But then there's this nice, smiling person who does come from a humble background. But once again, he's safe. So anecdotes yeah, I aside. I don't know if you guys saw the uh, recent list of demands at Dalton the very elite private school in New York City. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But the yeah. one on that list, which was completely crackpot, but the one I liked was that all uh, 
sort of multicultural kids, you know, any black kids who make it into the promotional material, you need to pay them extra. <laughs> you need to like refund their tuition by yes. a few thousand dollars because you're clearly taking advantage of them by putting them on the front of the brochure. <laughs> like, hey, look at this guy. Um, so yeah, no, making him the tour guide on campus. I know exactly what you, what you mean by that. Um, the framing that I use uh, in the chapter is one that Sharpton uses himself, which is that there are transformational leaders and transactional leaders. Transformational leaders, somebody like Dr. King changes the way people think. A transactional leader is somebody who's a compromiser. He brokers deals. You know, he get he, he maybe sacrifices some of his principles, but he, he gets things done. The boomers truly believe that transformational leadership is the only worthwhile kind. Um, that, you know, you never want to compromise on any of your principles. You always want to have this high-flown idealistic stand and never give an inch from that. But the problem with that is that transactional leaders are actually kind of really important. Um, there are people who have disagreements and we need to learn to live with each other without, you know, conclusively vanquishing our foe every single time. We need to have compromises. Um, and I think that Al Sharpton still, you know, styles himself a transformational type, but he knows transactional leadership a little bit. He, he knows how to, how to make deals. Because he has and a base. The younger... That's the key thing. He actually, when you have people, when you have bodies who will show up, that's part of what you use to wield that transactional power. Exactly. And the younger people don't. Um, and so because they're not kind of tethered to reality the way that Al Sharpton has to be because he has actual genuine followers that he has to deal with, they are able to become more and more radical. And it just kind of spins off in an, in an escalating cycle uh, until they get more and more untethered from reality and you see what you see today. One of the things that you just said, which I really loved, was about that transformational idea and how it is, and, and this is something you said at the very beginning, you know, in terms of the stakes and how we view the revolutions and the protests and so much more. And I think actually, really, you know, you have all the characters in the book. I wish we could get to all of them, um, at the Sotomayor section in particular, but we'll save that for another day. It's actually the millennials and the lessons that we have learned and the heuristics, like I said at the beginning, in the midst of all of that, what is the recipe? What is the actual way in order to change any of this, Helen, given all of the structural things in our society that you lay out here, especially the power of the media and that monolithic view that we have now been imparted to all of us about revolutionary change is the only real change? You know, it's, it's really difficult because millennials are in kind of a tragic situation. Uh, on the one hand, millennials know that the boomers made a lot of mistakes. And we know that because we're paying for a lot of them. Um, so we know we need to make different choices than they did. Uh, but the difficulty is that because of these structural changes, it's kind of hard for us to make different choices than the boomers did. We know we should because we know it didn't work out very well for them. Um, right. But a lot of the institutions that were available to them just aren't available to us. Um, so yeah, in terms of the solution for millennials going forward, uh, we even if we are able to break out of the mental monopoly 
<laughs> that the boomers have and are finally able to, you know, stop playing John Lennon's Imagine ever again. <laughs> um, <laughs> which I, you know, I believe in free speech and the First Amendment, but I would support a ban on that song. Um, mm -hmm. Even if we're able to liberate ourselves mentally from the boomer monopoly, the world just doesn't look the same as it did for them. And so even if we want to make better choices and belong to the institutions that they destroyed, a lot of times we're just not able to. So, so I wish I had a solution for that, but I do not. Yeah. So, so here's the real question. I'm thinking about what you just said. What is something that the millennial generation knows the boomers screwed up and knows it's wrong? Because I... I'm not quite sure how true that is, or maybe there's a degree of false consciousness here, but like, what are two or three things that your most New Yorker reading, the daily listening, tote bags galore, 28 year old in New York City, who has student loan debt, has a good job, but has been shut in in their studio apartment. I don't know if you've seen on Twitter the meme, the the, the New Yorker cover of of. Yeah. Uh, we'll put the, we'll, we'll put this link in the show notes. But what what does mm -hmm. that person know? Because I'm just suspicious about how much is known. Yeah, well, it's uh, s some of these are things that that person is going to know in the next few years as she enters middle age. Uh, one. She's probably less likely to be married than any previous generation. So clearly something about the sexual free-for-all that the boomers inaugurated is making it really, really difficult for millennials to pair up. So she's gonna know that she doesn't have a partner willing to commit to her. So that's a big problem. Gosh, I love this New Yorker cover. I'm so glad you brought it up because I yeah, can just look it's, around. It's the, it's I the picture. It, I have it etched in my mind. It's just such a millennial snapshot. I hope they put it in textbooks someday. Um, I remember she has a bottle of antidepressants on her desk. At least I think it's mm -hmm. antidepressants. It's some kind of medication. And that's another thing because the boomers, uh, I think probably came to regret their reliance on drugs. Boomers were really the first generation to say that drugs were cool. Uh, I mean, pot was unknown essentially on college campuses before the 60s. Um, you know, you would not smoke pot unless you were a jazz musician or something. Um, so, and once pot became ubiquitous on college campuses, then you got cocaine and then you got eventually the kind of normalization of mind altering drugs by prescription. And I really think the millennials are moving towards a skepticism of over medication for psychiatric disorders. Um, because for millennials, that's not something that they chose for themselves. That's something that was done to them. I can't even count how many people my age I know who were put on antidepressants or Ritalin or Adderall when they were teenagers and have just stayed on it. A book that I read for this book that I, I, I love is called Coming of Age on Zoloft by a, a millennial journalist named Catherine Sharp. Mm. And the reason I love it is because it doesn't just look at the statistics about overdiagnosis of depression and anxiety disorders, although the numbers certainly are there. She talks about it subjectively. She describes what it was like to be 28 years old and wake up one day and think, do I really not have any firsthand experience of my own personality? Do I not even know who I am? Because I've always experienced reality since I was 15 years old, mediated by this mind altering drug. Um, so I really do think 
there's a backlash brewing among millennials that they know as they get older that taking a pill for every problem is wrong. And that it was wrong for their parents to do that to them, to say, you know, oh gosh, my little eight-year-old doesn't have sufficient discipline and I don't wanna be the mean parent, let's stuff him with Ritalin. You know, I think anybody who resents their parents having done that to them probably has a pretty decent point. So two last questions here. And one that's coming to mind is, I detect a degree of contradiction in your previous answer, maybe I'm just mishearing. You were talking about how something the baby boomers do with their narcissism is they act as if they are the first ones to do X, Y, or Z. So, however, as we're discussing the, and then you gave the example of sex, you know, sex, it's the 60s were free, but in, you know, the jazz age, um, you know, roaring 20s, et cetera. Why were the boomer iterations of these trends more lasting and impactful? Is that just a consequence of size and control? Uh, no, you're absolutely right. That's a good catch. Because um, in some ways, the boomers are too full of themselves. <laughs> but, you know, the bottom line of this book is that the boomers really did alter the world. You know, they really did change society. Um, I think I compare them to the Protestant Reformation. And I stand by that. I think the boomer revolutions were on that scale. Um, wow. And uh, yeah. in some ways, some of those things were technological. You know, the pill really kind of did make a pretty big difference in making their sexual revolution last uh, in a way that the one of the roaring 20s mm -hmm. did not. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of those were legal changes, uh, the advent of no-fault divorce. Um, but so, yeah, some of it is things like that that just happened to come along when the boomers were there. Uh, and some of them were uh, factors of uh, demographic size. So, yeah, you're right. It's attention. In some ways, the boomers need to get over themselves. <laughs> But in other ways, they really were pretty darn consequential. And last but not least, and fittingly so, we need to talk about Gen X. The left <laughs> behind, the ignored. No, we don't. All we those never, we nobody don't. Nobody ever needs to talk about Gen X. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> give them, give no, us something. Give us something. <laughs> oh, gosh. My, my poor friend Matt Hennessy over at the Wall Street Journal wrote an entire book about Gen X, and it's terrific. Um, but I think it uh, just did not get sufficient attention because, sadly, nobody cares about Gen X. Um, Wait, they, quick, they... is he the one who says that Gen X is going to save us all? Was that was that his book? That's his thesis, yeah. Oh. I, they, they may yet. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> that could happen. It could happen late in the day. Um, no, they, Gen X genuinely has, in some ways, just as much of a grievance, a grievance against the boomers uh, because they're the ones who are trapped in their careers because all of the boomers just are not moving on. There are too many of them. So the Gen Xers have nowhere to advance. But I do genuinely think there is something special about having the boomers as your parents um, because the boomers were fundamentally allergic to authority. And you can't be a parent and not exercise authority. Being allergic to authority kind of makes you unsuited to the very fundamental tasks of raising children. Um, so millennials are in a better position than anyone to diagnose what's wrong about the boomers. So poor Gen X, they get sidelined again, but that's the reason why. That's great. And I keep and saying so last then, question, but this actually is the real last question. Oh, sorry, yeah. sorry. I thought you were dropping. Just yeah. ask it and then you're good. No, 
Yeah, the very last question here, Helen. What about the Zoomers? This is the real question, right? Which is like, and I'm sure we have some Zoomers on here, uh, some TikTok loving, uh, uh, what else Snappity do they do? Chatting, YouTube star you know. indulging. <laughs> uh, yeah, Miss Snap. No, no, Snapchat is us, Marshall. That's a millennial crap. Minecraft playing, Mr. Beast watching. Uh, are they the ones that are? I mean, they're they will have, I guess, Gen X as parents. Um, so is Gen X gonna save us all with their children? Uh, I look forward to the anti-Gen X polemic by the Zoomers <laughs> of the future. Uh, no, uh, actually, you know, as I was writing this book, I really wanted it to have something to say, not just to millennials who are angry at the boomers, but to boomers who are bewildered by millennials, you know, who don't understand why their children are so angry at them or who supervise millennials in the workplace and don't understand why they're such crap workers. Um, you know, if you're a boomer out there and you don't under understand why millennials are the way they are, hopefully this book will have something to say to you. Um, but the same way that those boomers feel about the snowflake millennials in their office that they don't understand is how I feel about the TikToking zoomers. I just don't get it. So <laughs> I, I don't get this. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel like the American conservative is full of TikToking zoomers in terms of its demographic. Yeah. So I feel like we're covered. That's so right. how, and where can everyone find your work? Obviously please purchase the book. We'll put a link in the show notes, go to bookshop.org to do that. But where else could everyone find you? Yeah. The book is uh, boomers, the men and women who promised freedom and delivered disaster wherever fine books are sold. Uh, my social media of choice is Twitter. That's where you can find me most often at H-E-R Andrews. And my day job is as a senior editor at The American Conservative, which is at theamericanconservative.com. Thank you, Helen. There you go. We appreciate Everybody it. go follow Helen, buy the book, and all of that. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks, Helen. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. We're going to be back next Tuesday. We have something really great planned for you all in light of everything that just happened. Please make sure you go and sign up for the realignment.substack.com. Awesome stuff that is planned for everyone. And give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Really helps other people find the show. I just want to add that if y'all have deep thoughts about what happened this week and how we're thinking about the end of the Trump administration, the start of the Biden administration, please send it to the Substack. Email us at realignmentpod at gmail.com. I am genuinely, 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 I know Sagar is as well, curious about how you all are thinking about this. We're in D.C., so especially those of you who are outside of the East Coast, we'd love to hear what you're thinking. See you next week.